reading from Romans chapter 16 this morning. Romans chapter 16. We're going to be concentrating on a little section there, verse 21 to verse 24. But I'm going to start reading, I think, at verse 16, just to remind us of what's come before. Let's hear the Word of God. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosas Pater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and your brother, Quartus, greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you're new to 10th, we, uh, we're doing a summer series, uh, which is kind of filler, while everybody's gone, and we'll be starting a proper series in two weeks' time. But we've been looking at this orphan chapter, chapter 16 of Romans, orphaned only because our evening preachers didn't get round to preaching it. And uh, it's unusual in that it's full of names. I didn't read verses 1 to 16 because we've read those verses several times over uh, and uh, on Sunday mornings. But the Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And because all Scripture is God-breathed, then this Scripture, however unfortunate it may be, full of names though it may be, uh, is also Scripture. And the ultimate author of all Scripture is the Holy Spirit. And when you come to study the Bible, your first engagement with the Bible should be asking the question, what does the author of the Bible say? Not, do, not what does the person who wrote this part of the Bible say? That might be of interest But it's what the author, that is the Holy Spirit, says that is important. Some of the Bible teachers, uh, scholars like Ernst Kaiserman, are irritated by the fact that this great letter should end uh, with such a lame conclusion. Uh, Those are his words. But what we find in this letter is something we see elsewhere in Paul's writing. The apostle regularly greets those he knows in a church to which he's writing. Uh, 
He usually includes those who are with him in the room at the time of writing. Uh, as, we, as we read this through, I think the best scholars uh, believe that verses 17 to 20 are a kind of intervention in the writing process. Paul usually writes something in his own hand at the end of his letters, and the scholars think this probably was written by Paul's own hand, that he has intervened at this point and written this appeal to the brothers. Uh, It seems it might have been prompted by the words of verse 18 that is just dictated, greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches in Christ greet you. And then as he thought about all the churches in Christ, he thought about all the ways in which the churches of Christ are under assault by false teachers, insinuating their way into the church and trying to gain followers and disciples for themselves and diverting people away through sweet talk, sweet-talking people, diverting people away from the truth into error or at least into a cul-de-sac rather than taking people forward in their Christian life. Maybe that was what prompted him to talk about this potential that there are foxes always ready to spoil the vines in God's vineyard. Little foxes that sneak in under the fence and are ready to destroy the church of Christ. Well, if that's the case, then by the time we get to verse 21, Paul has relinquished the pen to the one who's doing the writing, and he starts to dictate. And that's what we're seeing here in this little section. There are differences in, in the names here, obviously, the different people. Uh, there is contrast to the variety of names that we had earlier in the chapter when he's addressing a church. He's addressing men and women. He's addressing people from different walks of life, people with different roles in the church there in verses 1 to 17. Here, he just, address, he just tells us about the people who are there with him in the room, and he passes on their names. He goes from the community to this, to his study, and tells us who's with him. And I just want to take you for a moment through some of these names. And immediately, some of you will just glaze over, enjoy your rest. Uh, going through names is not usually very much fun, but why should we always have fun? Sometimes boring is good. Uh, And when it comes to me, you want me boring, I think. So let's look at these names then. First of all, there's the name Timothy. Timothy is one of the most mentioned people in Paul's entourage. His name is to be found in the opening of most of Paul's letters, the bulk of them actually. Here in Romans, he puts him at the end and not at the beginning because the book of Romans is written to a church that's not one that Paul has founded. They don't know him. They've heard of him. They've been wondering why he, the great apostle to the Gentiles, doesn't come to the capital city of the Gentile world, the Roman Empire, to see them. So he has to explain that in the first part of Romans, which is why it's almost preoccupied. The opening verses are almost wholly preoccupied with him explaining why he hasn't come, how he hopes to come, and what he hopes to do at using Rome as a springboard 
to go to Spain, not on vacation, but to go to Spain with the gospel. And so that's what he does. But now at last, at the end of the book, he indicates the unique status of Timothy among his friends and colleagues there in the room with him as he writes the letter. He puts him first among them. Uh, He puts them independently of the others. So we want to know something about this man, Timothy. He comes from a place called Lystria uh, in uh, South Galatia. Look up the map at the end of the Bible if you want to find out where that is. He joined the Apostle Paul at the beginning of his second missionary journey. You can read Acts 16 for the background about that. He seems to have been left behind by Paul in Greece when Paul returns to Jerusalem, but then met up with Paul again for the third missionary journey that Paul undertakes. We know that he was with Paul when he's imprisoned, when Paul is imprisoned in Rome. We know that he's still with Paul when Paul is released from the first imprisonment and before he's imprisoned a second time, which leads to his execution. So he's, Timothy is always there or there about in the story of the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul introduces him as co-author of a number of his letters, First and Second Thessalonians, Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. I told you it was going to get more interesting. In Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul refers to the influences that led Timothy to become a Christian. He says this, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure dwells in you too. Paul talks about a sincere faith, that is, genuine faith. He describes this genuine faith, this sincere faith, not as something we work up from within ourselves, not something we develop by doing certain exercises, as it were, of the mind, but a faith which is the gift of God, the gift of God to men and women. Uh, He he uses both Timothy uh, and himself as examples of how we should value tradition in the Christian life. Uh, He talks about himself in 2 Timothy. Himself, Paul himself valued tradition that he had received from his parents. His parents weren't Christians. They were believing Jews. They brought him up under the law of Judaism, they brought him up going to the synagogue, they brought him up reading the Old Testament scriptures, which were the only scriptures they knew. And Paul understood that by having that background of the scriptures, having paid for his education in at least two universities, and his earning the equivalent of two PhDs at those two universities, uh, he knew that his parents were responsible for that background of Bible knowledge, meaning Old Testament knowledge. And you see the usefulness of that Old Testament knowledge everywhere you go in Paul's letters. He is saturated with the Old Testament. Even when he's not quoting it, he's alluding to it. Or he uses an image from it. Or he's referring to a verse to be found in it. His mind is full of the Old Testament. That was a tradition that had been handed on from generation 
to generation. And they taught him the continuity that exists between Jewish worship and Christian worship. And that in Christian worship, we derive some of our practices from Jewish worship, which was authorized by God and was being practiced at that time in which Jesus himself observed in his public ministry. So there was that tradition that Paul contributed, and his contribution is found in Scripture and comes to us from Scripture. But Timothy had his own tradition. Timothy had learned about Jesus from his grandmother and his mother. He had been brought up at their knees, as it were, learning the Scriptures from them. I mean, Paul can say this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. That's what we call the Old Testament Scripture. Which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What your mother and your grandmother did was vital. And what they did was they handed over to you this tradition grounded in Holy Scripture, enlightened by the knowledge of Christ, which they themselves had come to know. We know from Acts 16 that his Jewish mother was a Christian. And Paul says, true faith, that is sincere faith, genuine faith, resided in the hearts of Lois and Eunice and now Timothy. Notice what he says about faith. It resides, it dwells in them, it lives in them, it lives in Timothy. Real faith. And that faith was not their, an accomplishment of theirs. It was entirely something they'd received from God. And here we have Timothy now, who belongs to the third generation of faith. And that's the great goal of the Christian life. That's why we bring our children to be baptized and why we pray that our children would find Christ. We are passing on this tradition that we have received, not only through Scripture, but also in the church in the form of sound words that the church has handed down to us from generation to generation. We hand these things on to the generations that follow us. So that was Timothy's Christian background. In addition to that, we discover that Timothy had received ordination by the laying on of hands, by the council of elders in 1 Timothy 1 and 4. We know that Paul had participated in his ordination. And he'd been ordained to be a minister, that is, a preaching minister in the church. He was one who had been entrusted with the treasure, that tradition, which is also the treasure, the deposit of the faith, handed on from previous generations to him through the elders, passed on the torch, the work of the Word of God. And he had been ordained to preach the Word to preach the Word in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, says Paul in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4. 
simply, he wasn't simply to be a teacher. There's, there's teaching and there's preaching. What's the difference between them? Paul spells it out in First Timothy chapter 2. It's the authority of the church that resides upon the preacher. Others can teach. You can teach a small group. You can teach somebody one-to-one Bible. You can teach a Bible school class. But it's not authoritative declaration. It's not the declaration of the church. That's what happens when all the church is together, which is why Paul says, preach the word in the presence of God. In the presence of God, in light of the second coming of Christ, in light of the final judgment, because you will be held accountable in the final judgment for what you teach. Preach the Word. And it was this tradition of sound doctrine that Timothy passed on to coming generations, and which now belongs to the church and is passed on by ordination from person to person throughout the history of the church. So Timothy stands out from the passage as someone whose role we can recognize even today, someone who is ordained by God to the work of ministry in the church. Next of all, Paul mentions three kinsmen. That is fellow Jews, Lucius. Probably Lucius, most likely Lucius of Cyrene, a prophet teacher of the church of Syria in Antioch mentioned in Acts 13. Jason, Jason is a famous name in our church. One of our deacons is called Jason. I want to embarrass him by pointing him out. Uh, But this is not that Jason. This Jason gave hospitality to Paul during his dangerous time in Thessalonica in uh, Acts 17. (coughs) And then he mentions this guy called Sosipater, Uh, This is most certainly Sopater, which is an abbreviation of his name, who accomplished Paul when he left Greece toward the end of the third missionary journey. Now, all of these men were probably delegates with Paul when he went to Jerusalem with the money, the collection that had been taken from all of the churches that Paul had planted for the poor in Jerusalem who were suffering, poor saints in Jerusalem, who were suffering as a result of famine and persecution in that city. So at this point in the narrative, we have a totally spontaneous, out-of-the-blue intervention by the man who's acting as Paul's amanuensis. Paul is dictating what is to be written. He's dictating this. It's being taken down by hand. I don't know if you know how that happens. Usually with a thing we call a pen and a piece of paper and and some ink and and you write. Rather than your thumb, you have to use three fingers to do it. Anyway, that's just a bit of scientific insight into the process. Uh, Paul's dictating. He's writing. And Paul probably gave him permission to do this, by the way. He includes himself, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, I just like this because it's a little insight into the reality of these people here. Now, there also is an insight here into the social history of the period. Uh, People that don't like history are boring people. Uh, That's because history is my thing. 
Dr. Boyce, who used to be the minister here, said there are two names here which we are, are obvious. They're related to each other. Even if you don't know Latin, you can see the, the relationship. There's tertius and quartus. And he says, in a, in a prominent Roman household, servants could be given names like these, primus, secundus, tertius, quartus. One, two, three, four. You work that out for yourself. Paul mentions numbers three and four here. Dr. Barnhouse, who preceded Dr. Boyce, uh, visited China back in the 1920s, 1930s, and he was hosted by a very wealthy Chinese man, family, uh, who commented on one of his servants who came in with a tray of goodies and put them down in front of him. He commented and said, he is the best number one boy in China. The best number one boy. So there was obviously a number one boy, number two boy, number three boy, or whatever in, in that household serving. In Acts chapter 20, we have a reference to somebody called Secundus from Thessalonica. So many of these servants then, so these are, these are slaves or servants. When we say slave, you must not think of the African slave trade, entirely different from that. You, people could be slaves for a short time and get out of it again, uh, whereas people who were enslaved then were, did not have that freedom. So many of the slaves then were converted to Christianity. And this particular slave has been given the permission, and he tells us that he's there. He's telling us, I'm here, Tertius. And he's not writing this letter, he's telling us he's not writing this letter in a perfunctory, out of perfunctory duty. He's not writing this letter or telling us his name because of him being naturally friendly. No, he is signaling to us that he is a fellow member with us of the body of Christ. He may have had no acquaintance there in Rome. He was from Corinth. As far as we know, none of these boys had ever been to Rome. He didn't know any of these individuals, but he did know as he's writing this letter to these people in Rome that these people are his Christian brothers and sisters. And he expresses that. He said, I wish you, I could see you, but I send my greetings to you in the Lord, in the Lord as one who knows the Lord and as one who has a, re a relationship with the Lord. So after he's written that, he says to Paul, what next? Paul says, Gaius. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. Gaius was probably a wealthy man. Uh, he, he is uh, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.14, is one of the very few people that Paul ever baptized himself. Paul didn't want people to be baptized by him and then go around boasting, oh, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul, and make a big deal out of it. So he, he tended not to do it himself. But this man was baptized by Paul. 
We're told that his house was right next door to the synagogue. We're told this in Acts. His house is right next door to the synagogue. He is converted, and he hosts the whole church in his house. It must have been a big house. And he hosts the whole church in his house. The second man is this man, Erastus, the city treasurer. This was a significant role in civic office. He probably had some wealth and social status. And there's a very intriguing fact that we must consider. Back in 1929, and no, I wasn't around then, uh, the members of the American School of Classical Studies at Athens made a discovery of a marble uh, paving block in Corinth. And on it was a Latin inscription. The paving block was from the first century. The inscription was from the first century and translated reads like this. Erastus, commissioner for public works, laid this pavement at his own expense. Could it be that this was Paul's friend? Well, we don't know. We know the titles are different from city treasurer to commissioner for public works. But a man could have started as commissioner of public works and then been promoted to be the city treasurer. It's at least a possibility. It's just very interesting that they found that name there. And then the last name is that of Quartus, our brother, meaning simply a brother in Christ and a fellow Christian. And I think we notice that when, he's, when Paul is writing to the people in the first part of the chapter, and he says so many good things about them and, and so on. Here he's very matter of fact. These are the guys in the room with him. He knows them so well. You don't know them, you know him, and you want, he wants you to know who they are who are with him in the room. Well, I just want, I, I should really say I'm going to stop there, but I'm not. Uh, just three, three things before we stop. When we look at this chapter, we find ourselves reflecting on the difference that the gospel makes to real people and to our lives. As you read this chapter, you see something about how Christian fellowship works. Christian fellowship. Throughout this entire chapter, beginning at the very first verse, we have found a set of people of different status, different means, different geographical locations. We have people in the capital, in the capital city of Rome. And people who live in capital cities usually have a quite superior air uh, over those who live in other areas. If you live in London, for example, London is the center of the world. In Britain, it's the only city that really counts. Everything is concentrated on London. Very little is farmed out to the provinces. Anything above the Watford Gap, which is about five miles or ten miles outside London, anything above that is called the provinces. And if you belong to the provinces, tough. Bananas, tough bananas. You're, you're, you're just one of the plebs. You don't count. 
I suppose it's a bit like here in the Northeast, from Boston to New York to Philadelphia to D.C., and the flyover states. Some of you come from a flyover state, and you object to them being called that. And you're right to object to them being called that, because it's looking down on them. People in capital cities do this all the time. Partly if you're in D.C., anything outside the Beltway is considered nothing. doesn't count. Well, I'm sure it was like that in Rome. And yet here we have people who are in Rome and outside of Rome and who've never been to Rome, and they belong to the same fellowship of Christ's church. They belong together. Now, how do they belong together? It's because they're all in the same family. What does it mean, Christian fellowship ultimately mean? It means to be in the same family. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. They would have read this. This would be read to them by Phoebe when she opened the the letter and, and read it out to them. He says, it says this, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now get that. This is a divided world that we're talking about in the first century. People are pegged into various boxes as we shall see. But he's saying to this congregation that's a mixed congregation of men and women, boys and girls, he's saying, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of sonship. You are all sons of God, by virtue of which you are therefore all heirs of the inheritance that has been promised to us in Christ. Remember, every one of these letters is being addressed to a mixed body of people. Paul says, we are sons of God. We belong in the same family. Second lesson we learn is about Christian service. When he writes to the Corinthians, Paul tells them that the Holy Spirit has gifted the whole church, men and women, with spiritual gifts. We also know that God, in His providence, has gifted men and women with talents. One is spiritual, one is natural. But whether our gifts are spiritual or natural, whether they're gifts or talents, we learn what we can do by trial and error. Life is learning what we can do. In this list of people here, in the passage we're looking at, there are people who are full-time Christian workers. There's Paul, and there's Timothy, for example. Uh, there's Gaius, who's a businessman probably, who has his own home that he hosts a church in. Phoebe, who is a woman of means and is, seems to be, she's able to pay her own way, and she's, going to the, she's gone to Rome with this letter from Paul to the people there. There, there are slaves, 
who are earning their, their keep. A mixture of people, lay people, ordained people, both of them serving the church, whether it's giving their home, opening their home like Priscilla and Aquila did to, in, in Rome itself, or whether it's Phoebe going out of her way to serve the church by traveling with this letter. Here they are, all of them, women and men in the church, fellow workers together in the kingdom of God. And I think of our church here, and I think of those in our church here, a small army of people who devote themselves and devote significant amounts of their own time to the service of Christ and His church. I think of our parish elders who, although they're ordained, they're not paid for anything. They, they do everything in their own time, and they're, they're caring for the parish, and, and I don't know how they do it, frankly. And there are others who give of their time and their energy in order to serve other people within the church. That's how Christian service works. Very little Christian service is paid. The paid people are just the, you know, the, the little bit of the, uh, the, uh, at the top here, not because they're at the top, but this is a little small bit. And then you have this huge amount of people underneath who are serving the Lord together. And what is it that our Christian service must look like? Well, Paul would say that we are to serve as befits saints. So we're to be holy. So when Paul tells the church to greet one another with a holy kiss, he says, holy kiss. Don't take advantage. Don't do anything unholy. Holy kiss. I'm not urging you to do that, by the way. But Paul tells this church to do that. So we're to do it as befits the saints, or we're to do it as unto the Lord. Remember Jesus very annoyingly said, if you do things to be seen, to be thanked, to be congratulated, then you'll be seen, you'll be thanked, you'll be congratulated. But don't expect anything from your Father in heaven because you get what you want. There's an old hymn we used to sing, The Master Seeth. What is man? That's what we serve. So there's so much that's done behind the scenes that no one will ever know about. I'm going to get myself into some serious trouble now. When we were in London, nobody in our church, nobody knew who it was that went to work every day and then coming back from work went into the church and cleaned the toilets. Nobody ever knew. But I live with her. I'll just say that. That's Christian service behind the scenes, doing what you can do to serve the church. Well, the third thing, third lesson, Christian service, 
Christian fellowship. The third lesson is Christian unity. In this chapter, we're reminded of the significant social divides in that first century world. You know what they are? Jew versus Gentile, uh, free versus slave, men versus women. And throughout the letter, Paul has consisted that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Throughout his letter, this last part of the letter, he has mentioned Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians. They're all mixed in together here in the church of God. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. In his letter to the Ephesians, the apostle talks about uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 what Christ has done by his death in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that is, you Gentiles who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Jesus brings together these disparate groups, Jews, Gentiles. The Jews who in their, in their daily prayers would praise God that they were not Gentiles or dogs or women. And he brings these two groups of people together and reconciles them in the church, in one new humanity. That's how the church is to be. That's how Paul sees the church in Ephesians chapter 2. One new man in Christ. A new humanity that comprises of every part of the old humanity. That brings together everybody around this whole world and places them together in Christ. Jew versus Gentile. Now what about Slave versus free. You find in, in this letter the reference to these two guys that we've seen who were slaves or servants. We don't know which. And the slavery in the first century is nothing like African slavery was here in our day. It's a much more fluid kind of thing. But nonetheless, socially, the slave and the free man were separated as far as you could. And then here they are in the same letter, in the same church, with the same apostle, serving the Lord together as part of those, that one family of God, sons of God. And then there are men and women, fellow workers, apparently, Christian siblings, both sons of God, You know, in the old age, you go back to, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, there you have a beautiful picture of the man and the woman together, partners. And God says, a man should leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. He looks at her and he thinks she is a helper, the same as him. 
And then there's the fall. Where there was partnership, there becomes something different. Throughout the Old Testament, if you go to chapter 4 of Genesis, there you find the first man who has multiple wives. Women become an object rather than a subject. They become something to use and possess. And there have been stages even in our history where that's been the case, that a woman is a possession. But when Jesus came, that changed. When Jesus came, that changed altogether. He set the, he, he, he restored, and, and during the Puritan era, you may be interested to know this, that during the Puritan era, into our northern European society that, that then stretched over the, the Atlantic Ocean to, to America, it was the Puritans who rediscovered marriage as a companionate thing rather than a kind of owner and owned. It was the Puritans who rediscovered that. And the gospel is about reconciling men and women in Christ. And so we have this beautiful picture today of Christian men who take seriously what it means to be a man in Christ, loving their wives, imitating Jesus by being willing to die for them, sacrificing himself as Jesus did for his wife, just as Jesus did for the church. From heaven he came to sought her to be his holy bride. With those, his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And I'm grateful for the young men who have spoken to me over the, over the last few weeks to reassure me that they value their wives highly and they love them. They're prepared to do anything for them and that they seek to make them great for God. Good on you guys. That's what Jesus would do. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians. In Galatians chapter, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're not all the same, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. We each have different tasks, but we're all one in Christ. Ontologically, one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this bunch of people we've not met yet and will meet one day. And we thank you, Lord, for the bundle of life that the church is in its fellowship, in its service, and in its unity. Thank you for the lessons we've learned from this passage as you've left it in the Bible there for our instruction. We thank you, Lord, for those who take heed to these things and are applying them in their 
family life and in their home life and in their relationships with people in church, the friendships we have with men and women within the body of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless and bring us closer together, Lord, as a body, that we might serve you well in Jesus' strong name. Amen.